passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Philippians chapter 2. We're continuing our, our journey through the book of Philippians. Please follow along as I read aloud Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I love this passage. It's a, it's a convicting passage for me, and it, it's a really an important one, especially uh, in God's grace. It's just a really important passage for us to consider in our current cultural context and climate. It's a, it's a text that is primarily concerned with the heart posture of the church. What is our heart posture? What is, what is our mindset as a church? And remember last week, as Pastor Kurt led us through the previous passage, Paul's overarching concern in the book of Philippians. He says this, Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This verse is really like the, the heartbeat of the book of Philippians, that, that Paul, the reason why he's writing this letter is that the, the church in Philippi would live lives that are worthy of the gospel, even in the midst of hardship, even in the midst of suffering, that the lives that they conduct would be ones that are honoring to the gospel itself. It's a powerful statement. But also at the same time, we can wonder, well, what exactly does that mean? What exactly does that look like? And, and I think a, a helpful way of describing it is when we say that we are to live lives worthy of the gospel, what we mean is that we are to, to live lives or conduct lives that promote the gospel. Or what we said a couple weeks ago as we were looking at, at Paul's own life and his, his reflections on his life, that we would live lives that adorn the gospel, not defile the gospel. And this is a charge for us in any and every season of life, but especially in seasons of hardship. And that seems to be what the church in Philippi is facing right now. Paul, actually a few verses later in, in Philippians chapter 2, uh, seems to point out that there's some grumbling and there's some complaining that are happening in the midst of the hardship and the suffering the church in Philippi is experiencing. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Paul is, is recognizing that there's some tensions here, that the cracks are beginning to show as they are enduring all of this hardship. And so, as they live lives worthy of the gospel, that they should not complain and they should not grumble. And I, I don't know about you, but, but when I think of my own life and I think of, of times when, when the challenges are there or, or when life doesn't go the way that I want, one of the first things that I do is to find something or, or honestly someone for me to complain about. And I mean, why, why wouldn't I from a purely worldly perspective? I have a, a certain understanding of how I want my life to go of how I want things to be handled and the direction of, uh, of the, the, the life I live. And when things don't go the way that I want, it, it, it is so easy and natural to respond with negativity. 
And, and really, that's the air that we breathe in our culture day in and day out. We live in the most individualistic culture in human history, and that's not, us, not necessarily a good thing. It's not good for us to be in this place where we think that we are so important, that we are the center of the universe. And even though we may never say it or vocalize it, there is this internal struggle within each and every one of us that says, life is all about me. It's all about my preferences. It's all about my wants. It's all about my desires. It's all about my needs. And thinking of others, well, that that just comes second if I have the time to do that at all. Thinking of others only when it's convenient to me. And that's completely different from the kingdom of Jesus, isn't it? Jesus doesn't say, you exist to serve me, but instead the heart posture of Jesus' kingdom says, I exist to serve the king by serving you. The way of Jesus is entirely different than the way of the world. And if we are to live worthy of the gospel, just like what this passage tells us, This morning, we have to do it with the right heart posture. In our passage this morning, just four verses long, it's a short passage. What I want us to do this morning is I want us to break apart this passage into two sections, really centering it around two questions that we should ask ourselves, that we should wrestle with within our own lives. As we consider these four verses, we're going to just ask two questions. Am I a citizen of the kingdom? Am I a part of God's kingdom? And then second, do I have the right heart or do I have the right heart posture? So that's going to kind of be our, our, our roadmap for this morning. If you have a, uh, a Bible, I encourage you to follow along as we work our way through this text. But let's pray as we approach God's word. Father, as we uh, approach your word, we do so first just confessing our complete and utter dependence upon you. I see in my own life all too often the, the struggle to, to think of others first, to put others first, and, and to be a servant and so, God, we, we ask that you would help us to be a people who live lives that are completely worthy to the gospel. God, that you would help us to repent of our selfishness, that even in this time this morning, that you would reveal to us ways that we are living selfishly and that we don't think of others. And Jesus, we, we rejoice that you hear our prayers. We rejoice that you delight to answer, answer them. We rejoice that you offer us forgiveness and grace and mercy at the cross. It's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, you'll notice uh, that both of the questions that we'll be looking at this morning are are questions that are really introspective, aren't they? They force us to wrestle with our own hearts uh, of what's really going on in our own lives and whether whether the the truth of the gospel is actually permeated into our lives. So let's first consider the question, am I a citizen of the kingdom? Let's work our way again through verse 1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. And we're going to pick up the rest of that sentence here in a moment. But let's just first pause in this verse. This text begins with the word so. It's reminding us of what Paul has already said. Remember that we are to live lives that are concerned with living worthy of the gospel, living in such a way that we promote or, or adorn the gospel with our lives. And, and the, the natural question to that is, well, how exactly do we do that? And that's what Paul is answering here. He says, well, here's how I want you to start as you are living a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus. But before he actually gives us the action step, 
which is what we'll see in verse 2, he actually takes a few moments to, to remind us of what we have in the gospel. And that's what this entire verse is. It's four reminders that are set as if clauses in, in this sentence. And this is really just a conditional sentence. If, then. He gives us four reminders of what is ours because of the work of Jesus. Again, it's not just a simple list of reminders. It's, it, the way it's written forces us to wrestle with the implications of the gospel in our own lives. And let, let's just take a moment and look at each of those, but, but don't miss, as we look at them individually, don't miss the cumulative effect of, the, of these sayings or these statements. It's almost as though Paul is saying something like this, and I'm going to word these in the form of a question. When you face hardship and circumstances that so easily could lead to grumbling, is there any encouragement and comfort in Jesus, that Jesus never leaves you, that Jesus never forsakes you? It's almost as though he's asking that question of the church in Philippi, and the church in Philippi, of course, would respond, yes, there is comfort in the fact that Jesus would never leave me. Jesus will never forsake me. And he goes on to another question. Is there anything comforting about the fact that God loves you? That this love bears with you in your weaknesses and endures in the midst of your backsliding, in the midst of your lukewarm devotion to him? And of course the answer is, well, yes, there, there is certainly comfort there. And so Paul asks another question. When God saved you, did he give you his spirit as a guarantee of your salvation until one day you would receive fully your salvation, your inheritance in the age to come? And in giving you his spirit, does God unite you with Jesus? And does he unite you with other Christians here in the church? And of course, the answer is again, well, yes, he did. And then he asks another question. Have you ever been shown love and compassion by God? And has God ever used other Christians to show you love and to show you compassion in the church? Of course, the answer is again, Yes, and for the church in Philippi, Paul was a prime example of that, that God used Paul to show compassion and love and generosity to the church in Philippi by how he laid down his rights to serve the church in Philippi. And so Paul is saying, if I've done this for you, or have I done this for you? And of course the response is, well, yes. Question Yes, question, yes, question, yes, question, yes. And the important thing to remember that all of these things are not just true about the church in Philippi, but they're true about all of us as well. If, if we have responded to the message of the gospel with repentance and, and faith, then all of these things are true. All of them, not just some of them, but all of them are true of us as well. It's not as though we can look at this and say, well, yeah, yes, it's, it's true that, that Jesus is with me, and it's true that the Spirit dwells within me, but, I, but at the same time, I, I'm not really sure. In fact, I, I think I have pretty good evidence that God the Father doesn't actually love me, or that I've never actually re received or experienced compassion in my life. No, what what Paul is reminding the church in Philippi and reminding us as well is that all of us have received all of these things in the gospel. Perhaps a better way of putting this verse is, is something like this. Now, since you, have since you can find encouragement in Jesus, even in your suffering, since you can find comfort in God's love for you, 
Since you are united with God and others through his spirit, and since you can find comfort and sympathy from other Christians. And if we stop right there, we're left, okay, well, what's coming next? We have all of these senses. We are reminded of all of these things that are ours in the gospel. But what comes next? You see, all of these questions, all of these statements are, are predicated on the fact that we're actually found in Jesus. That's all that really matters in Paul's view and, and according to this text. If you're a citizen of the kingdom, then you have encouragement, you have comfort, you have fellowship with the Spirit, you have compassion and love, and that's that. Those things are true. And so we're forced to ask ourselves, well, am I a citizen of the kingdom? Am I a citizen of the kingdom? Am I a part of God's kingdom because of the work of Jesus? And if I've come to the realization that my sin is great, my need for a savior is great, if I come to the point where, where I say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling, like the old hymn says, then we're found in the kingdom of Christ Jesus. And more importantly, all of these realities, even in suffering, even in hardship, all of these things are true because of Jesus. Now here's the important thing for us to remember. These, these truths are not dependent upon your emotions or your recognition of them. They are true of you no matter what. The reality of the promises of God do not depend on your personal experiences or, or, or feelings. It, it doesn't matter if you say, well, it doesn't really feel like, like Jesus is with me right now, or, or I can't really be sure that God loves me but like he, he does the other people in the church. These are realities, whether we recognize them or not. That's why I, I love the language there of, of since, not just if, since all of these things our true. See, Paul is building this case. He's, he's building up to this charge on how to live a life worthy of the gospel. And he starts by reminding us of what is ours in Christ Jesus. And the question is not whether these things are true of us. The question is whether we are truly a Christian or not. The only question that matters is, am I a citizen of the kingdom? Now, you may be left wondering, why exactly does Paul here, does he, he use so many of these if statements? There's four of them right off the bat. What, what exactly is he doing? Well, this is, this is a powerful rhetorical device that he's doing, and, and um, he, he's saying, if all of this is true, and it is in Christ Jesus, then this is how you must respond. This is the only logical response. And, and whether we, uh, we may ad want to admit it or not, if we have kids, we've probably done something similar in our own lives. Uh, I've never actually said this to one of my kids, but, but imagine we have this conversation. The, the, the kids are, are grumbling um, at home over, over the food that we're eating, and uh, it goes something like this. Hey, hey, did mom buy you that food? And of course the answer is, well, yeah. Well, did mom make you that food? Yeah. Did mom put it on your plate for you and get it ready for you? Well, yeah. Do you like other food that mom makes? Yeah. Then don't you think that the least you can do is just say thank you to mom? That's the exact same logic that Paul is using here. It's building to this climax because of all of these things that have been done for you. Therefore, you should, you must respond this way. What's the only response or what's the response that Paul wants from the church in Philippi and from us? It's found in verse 2. Complete 
my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full, being in full accord and of one mind. Notice the command here is found at the very beginning of verse 2. Paul is saying, complete my joy. Paul shows his pastor's heart here. He's full of joy in prison because the gospel is spreading. He's full of joy because this gift that the, the church in Philippi sent him, but his primary concern isn't his well-being. His primary concern is the growth of the church in Philippi, that they would continue to grow in their spiritual walk so that they would live lives increasingly worthy of the gospel of Jesus. Completes my joy. But how? That's what Paul focuses on in the latter half of verse 2. By having the same mindsets. By having the same heart posture here. That's what Paul means when he says of being the same mind. He, he's not saying that everyone has to have the exact same opinion, opinion on everything. He's not saying that everyone has to think the exact same way, but instead that the overarching disposition of the church in Philippi must be the same. They are united in a similar heart commitment. Because everything that they share in the gospel, what we just looked at in verse 1, all of those things are greater than whatever may divide them. Even their hardship and their suffering that they are experiencing right now, that they can be united with the same commitment to a similar heart posture. What exactly is that heart posture? Verses 3 and 4 give us the answer. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You see what Paul is driving at here? This heart, pro this heart posture that we are to have is, is really just a byproduct of the gospel. It's humility. It's a byproduct of the gospel. When we reflect on what Jesus has done for us, what has been given to us in the gospel, the only logical response is a response of humility. Now, humility, I, I know it's, it's a buzzword today in Christian circles. It's something that is talked about all the time, but I think there's a great deal of misconceptions about what it truly means to be humble. I think sometimes we can think that to be humble means that we have to be self-deprecating or we have to take upon ourselves some form of self-loathing or, or we have to have this low form of self-esteem. But, but ironically, I think all of those things are actually just a form of pride. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, A man is never so proud as when he is striking an attitude of humility. When we try to get others to think of ourselves as humble, that's a form of Pride. There is there's this form of self-loathing, of, of self-deprecating that's actually a form of pride because we're thinking too much of ourselves rather than considering others and being concerned with others. Tim Keller wrote an excellent book on humility. It's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, uh, self and, and he puts it this way. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself not needing to connect things with myself. It is the end to thoughts such as, I'm in this room with these people. Does that make me look good? Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. 
In fact, I stop thinking about myself. The freedom of self-forgetfulness, the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. And as we look at Paul's words here in verses 3 and 4, isn't that really the exact same thing that what he is saying? It would be wrong for us to take Paul's words here at the end of verse 3 and conclude that humility, when he says that in humility count others as more significant than yourselves, it would be wrong for us to conclude that we have to belittle ourselves in order to be truly humble. That's not what Paul has in mind. We'll see in just a few moments that the the verse that comes right after this, or the verses right after this, Paul actually gives us the example of Jesus. He says, hey, have, have this mindset among yourselves, which is found in Christ Jesus. And he talks about all that Jesus did, leaving his place in the heavens and being incarnated, taking on human flesh and actually going to a cross. And it would be wrong for us to say that humility for Jesus meant that he thought to himself, well, I'm not as good as these other people. I'm of less value than these other people. But instead, for Jesus, humility meant I'm going to serve them regardless of my exalted position and status. The heart posture that we must adopt as Christians doesn't think less of ourselves, but thinks of ourselves less, to borrow a phrase from Rick Warren. In this cultural climate that we live in that says you have to look out for yourself, you have to look out for number one, humility instead says I'm not here to exalt myself. I'm not here to to even exalt my own agenda or to pursue my own agenda or preferences. I'm here instead to love others no matter how I can. And that's a theme that runs throughout all of Paul's writings. We see this over and over again, that Christian love has to be sacrificial. It cannot think first of our own preferences, our own wants, our own desires, but instead we have to think first of the good of others. The Christian should never be asking, what can I get out of this? But instead, how can I serve others more effectively? And so Paul, he's writing in in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He, He says this, let no one seek his own good, but instead the good of his neighbor. And then just a few verses later, he actually gives himself as an example. He says this, Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but instead that of many. So Paul points to himself as an example of this type of heart posture. Later, he actually says in 1 Corinthians that this heart posture is essential to love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love does not insist on its own way. Wow, what a, what a powerful statement there. Love does not insist on being the one who is exalted. Instead, it seeks out ways to serve others. When Paul is writing to the church in Rome, Romans chapter 15, he actually says that this heart posture is an actual obligation for Christians who have freedom of conscience. He says it this way, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Why? Not to please ourselves. There is an obligation for Christians not to please ourselves, but instead to be concerned with others. And if we are Christians, that is our obligation. It's a requirement for each and every one of us to not primarily think of ourselves, but also to think of how we can be loving other people, even when it costs us much, even when it comes at great expense to us. And so I want you to ask, and this is our second question, this introspective question is, do I have the right heart? 
Consider your attitudes and consider your wants and your desires and your preferences and your default approach to others in life. Do I have the right heart? Is my heart the same sort of of heart attitude that we see from Paul? And Paul, while he is in prison, is actually finding ways to rejoice because in spite of his circumstances, the gospel is going forth and that's worth rejoicing. That, That Paul finds himself in this place that says, hey, you know what, that's not what I desire. That's not really what I had in mind, but I can rejoice because God is at work. Are, are we people who have this heart posture that says, hey, you know what? What matters most to me is living life worthy of the gospel. And the way I do that is by serving other people, by putting other people first. Do we have the right heart? Now, let me just take a moment as, as we bring this to an end. Let me just take a moment and recognize the elephant in the room here. I think that every single one of us, without even mentioning the pandemic, without even mentioning the the questions and the debates on whether we should reopen the state or not, I'm sure each and every one of us, we can make the connection in this passage. And and this is absolutely a time where we should be putting into practice Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, on ways that we can think of others, consider the interests of others, not primarily our own interests, even if that is an inconvenience to us. And yet, at the same time, I don't want us to be so focused on that, this season of life, on on how applicable this is in this season of life that that we miss, that this passage is is really about all of life. This is a passage that is applicable for so many different areas. It's it's applicable for husbands and wives. It's applicable for brothers and sisters. It's it's applicable for co-workers. It's it's applicable in, in countless other areas. And all of these things are true. And yet, the primary concern that Paul has is how we treat one another in the church. Our concern with other people in the church, that we would be a people whose chief concern is not getting our own way, but instead following the way of Jesus. And that's why Paul, right after this, as he's talking about this mindset, he he transitions and says, you know what, this is the exact same mindset that Jesus has that Jesus had when he left the heavens and came to earth. We're going to look at this passage next week, but just consider the implications or the significance of the example that we have in Jesus, this mindset that we have in Jesus, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, the the charge of this passage is, is abundantly simple. It's for us to cultivate a heart posture that pursues the good of others. And how do we do that? Just by looking to Jesus. We cultivate this heart posture that is chiefly concerned with the good of other people. That's the primary concern. And the only way that we can do that is by looking to Jesus. Paul's words here, this call, this charge to serve others, even when it is an inconvenience to us, it's 
ultimately at its core, it's, it's a call to live like Jesus. To live a life worthy of the gospel ultimately just means to live a life like Jesus lived. That if Jesus, God in the flesh, could, could take, or God himself could, could take human flesh for your good and my good, then why can't we also commit ourselves to think of others first? If Jesus' act of self-sacrifice led him all the way to the cross, can't you and I resolve to lay our own wants and preferences and desires on the altar for the sake of our brothers and sisters? The key to living a life of humility is to just simply look at Jesus. It's, it's not to, to attempt to drum up humility in ourselves, but in simply to look at Jesus. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was a um, he was a pastor in the 20th century. He was once asked about how he could cultivate or how someone could cultivate humility and consider what he says. A friend was asking me the other day, how can I be humble? He felt there was pride in him and he wanted to know how to get rid of it. He seemed to think that I had some patent remedy and could tell him, do this, that, and the other, and you will be humble. I said, I have no method or technique. I can't tell you to get down on your knees and believe in prayer because I know you will soon be proud of that. There's only one way to be humble, and that is to look into the face of Jesus Christ. You cannot be anything else when you see him. That is the only way. Humility is not something you can create within yourself. Rather, you look at him, you realize who he is, and what he has done, and you are humbled. Cultivate a, a heart posture of, of humility, pursuing the good of others in your life. Not by trying to do that on your own, but by simply just looking to Jesus. We look at Jesus as our example, yes. But we also look at what Jesus has done for us in the gospel. Remember Paul's the overarching statement here in, in these verses, if all of these things have been done for you in the gospel, and they have, then why wouldn't you live a life of service and love and putting others first? Let's be a people of gospel humility. Let's pray. Father, help us to be a people who live lives that promote the gospel where we honor you with how we live our lives. Because this is the only logical conclusion of what you have done for us in the gospel. Help us be a people who, when we begin to exalt ourselves or begin to think of our own wants and preferences before the good of other people, when we begin to ask, why aren't people serving us as opposed to the other way around? Help us to first look to the cross and in humility that we would repent and we would take up our own cross and follow you and live a life of service and humility. Help us, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.